Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 119, recorded March 14th, 2013. Our 5690s episode, and today we're covering the original series, issues 64 through 66. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. And seeing an old friend of Kirk's in the first issue. Right. So the first one is a standalone set right after where No Man Has Gone Before. Yes. And then the other two are movie era, and it kicks off the four-part miniseries. Yeah, because after the second issue, they definitely still seem to have a lot of ground to cover. Right. So yeah, next time we do original series, we'll cover the last two episodes of that story arc. And these are good. I enjoyed all three of these. Um, I did too. Although um, on the first one, I was really stoked at the beginning and middle, and then kind of less stoked towards the end. Right. Yeah. It's not. It's not the greatest one I've ever read, but uh, it was nice to see a uh, remembrance of a certain person. Exactly. And it's kind of cool seeing uh, an episode, uh, an adventure, uh, with Kirk and, and Gary as they were when they were young. Right. About the same time that these books were coming out, there was um, a novel series. I think it was a two-parter called Brothers Keeper. I forgot who wrote it. It might have been Michael Jan Friedman. Uh, I can't remember who wrote it. But it basically, it's also the the story of Kirk young Kirk and Gary on the, the Farragut, so it's uh, worth a read if you ever get a chance. What was that story again? What was the name? Uh, Brother's Keeper. Brother's Keeper, okay. Yeah. Cool. Pretty sure that's it. It was a two-parter. Cool. Well, we got a story right here, so shall we begin? Yeah, let's jump into it. Excellent. So this is uh, DC's Star Trek, uh, the original series... Continuity, issue number 64, titled Gary. October 1994 is the published date. The writer is Kevin J. Ryan. Penciler is Rod Wiggum. Inker is Arnie Starr. Colorist is David Graffy. Letterer, Bob Penaha. And editor, Margaret Clark. The dark cover is in black, blue, and white. The very center of Gary Mitchell's shadowy, unsmiling face is near the top. Spock and Kirk's faces are below Gary's. A black silhouette of the Enterprise traveling among black planets is at the bottom. Above all that, in bold orange and gold lettering, is where one man has gone before. The issue opens in Kirk's quarters, where he is preparing for a very difficult task. He remembers back to when Captain Robert April informed his family of the loss of Kirk's father. He imagines how hard that must have been for April, being the best friend of his father's. He now must go through something very similar. He must record the message telling Gary Mitchell's parents that Gary will not be coming home. 
Fast forward to the home of Gary's parents, possibly on Earth. Kirk's message is playing on a wall-mounted view screen for the silver-haired couple. Kirk gives them the bad news and tells them that Gary died bravely, but that the details of his death are classified. Suffice to say, he gave his life fighting a force that threatened the ship and everyone aboard. Though he cannot give them the details of his death, Kirk tells them a story about how their son lived. The narrative shifts to the bridge of the USS Farragut. Lieutenant Gary Mitchell is at the navigation station, and Kirk is at the helm. Captain Garovic is at the con. Later, Gary enters Lieutenant Kirk's quarters while Kirk is reading a stack of books. Though reading is Kirk's idea of relaxation, his friend Gary disagrees and talks about him joining him to help conduct an informal ship's orientation with two lovely new crew members. On their way there, they are intercepted by an intercom announcement that calls them to the briefing room. In the briefing room, they are told of a Federation anthropology team sent down to Demoras to assess the sentience of the Demorans, who descended from rodents. Starfleet received an emergency call from the team indicating they might have been attacked by the Demorans. After that contact was completely lost. Kirk is assigned to lead a small landing party to effect a rescue and failing that, at least find out what happened to the anthropology team. Unlike the first team, Kirk's team will not be surgically altered to look like the Demorans or smell like them via artificial pheromones. Hooded clothing in the native style will have to do given the time constraints that they'll have to be working under. The captain dismisses everyone but Kirk. The captain tells why he put Kirk in charge of the team. His exemplary record at the academy and since was the main reason. His recent success with a cultural exchange with a primitive people was a feather in Kirk's cap also. However, those people were very friendly. That mission was easy compared to this one. This mission will likely test Kirk's mettle and see how he deals with adversity and the unexpected. The captain professes his confidence in Kirk that he will be able to balance rescuing the first team, not breaking the prime directive, and reminding him that his first duty is to the people under his command on the mission. A hard balancing act, to be sure. Later, Kirk's team is beamed down to a faint human lysine reading. They beam down with hoods up. Gary has difficulty locating the human life signs with the abundance of life forms in the vicinity. The doctor member of the team locates the faint human reading and they move towards it. As they approach a stand of trees, they hear sounds and Kirk tells them to get down. A slow-moving ensign is hit with a dart and quickly dies of the neurotoxins it was laced with. Kirk calls for a beam-out of the body and says he does not want a replacement. No more people should be put at risk. Gary helps Kirk and tells him to stop beating himself up over the loss. Kirk assesses the Demorans as intelligent, aggressive, and very good at killing. Gary points out they must be aggressive for a reason. If they can figure out their motives, they have a better chance of surviving and retrieving what's left of the first team. Kirk tells them to all be on alert as they move out. They will follow Ayer's human life sign readings. 
Eventually, they find an injured member of the anthropology team. All he can tell them before he dies is that they thought they were studying the Demorans, but later realized the Demorans were studying them. When the attack came, it was fast and vicious. They took all of them and their equipment. Now that the doctor knows what to look for, he picks up four humans two kilometers away. They have weakened forms of the neurotoxin in their system, and their life signs are weak. Mitchell reports they can't yet pick out the Demoran's life signs from the rest of the life signs of the planet. However, they are likely there due to the overall concentrations of life signs readings near the human readings. Kirk thinks it's another trap, but Gary tries to talk Kirk into taking the time to learning more about the Demoran's motives that they may just not understand. Kirk says they can't take the time. The six scientists may die of their exposure to the weakened neurotoxins. They need to take action now. They come upon the unconscious scientists with six Demorans around them. Kirk orders an attack with lasers set to stun. The four of them come in from two different sides and stun six Demorans. Before they can beam out with the scientists, they are attacked by a new group of Demorans. The first set of Demorans appear to have been baked. They take down many Demorans, but their attackers' superior numbers force Kirk and Gary to retreat without the doctor or the fourth landing party member. Kirk again is beating himself up over falling into two traps and losing another two of his men. In the skirmish, they lost their communicators and one of their lasers. They are now down to one weapon and no way to contact the ship. Gary points out they could have used their darts to kill them right away if they wanted to, but they did not. They seem to be focused on grabbing their equipment. The two make their way to the edge of a tree line and see the Demorans in a large group. Kirk says too many to take on, but they have their communicators, which is the only way they can get back to the ship. A sole Demoran attacks them, and Gary takes the dart meant for Kirk. Kirk is aiding Gary when the Demorans walk up to them. The Demoran point man appears to be the leader who is carrying a long staff with an almost peace sign signet at the top. All Gary can utter is that he thinks they have made contact. Later Kirk and the leader are discussing the situation. Luckily the Demorans speak English. It was all just a silly misunderstanding. The scientific team, dressed like them, were obviously deceivers, and the Demorans had to defend themselves. Tricksters from the stars hid, but teachers come openly. Silly Starfleet people. The leader says the last of the scientists are now dead, and sorry about that ensign we murdered, but the rest of your team is recovering nicely, including Gary, who took the dart in his hand. They gave him some kind of antitoxin. Kirk closes the story of how Gary saved the landing party from their own ignorance of another race with his openness to the wonders of the galaxy. Kirk tells Gary's parents he will miss Gary and honor his memory. The end. So you like this one? <laughs> I like the beginning and middle. thought the end was kind of dumb. Oh, the whole misunderstanding thing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like how 
aggressive Kirk was, and I didn't really see what value Gary was was providing. It seemed like they were kind of out of character for both of them. I think they were. Um, Gary always, well, came off in that one episode as a pretty carefree, happy-go-lucky guy, and that was kind of extended in uh, some of the Starfleet Academy uh, comics. Right. Here, he's the perceptive one, not Kirk. I mean, quite frankly, the value he's adding is that he gets it. Um, these people are reacting out of fear to the presence of the Starfleet people being there. And if Kirk maybe had some of that insight, maybe things might have went, went a little wrong. And I completely agree with you. Kirk is not thinking. He's reacting emotionally. Right. Yes, they are out of character. Very odd. But interesting to see uh, Gary more fleshed out. Is he? I thought he... I didn't really get anything extra from the story about Gary. Well... It, it was really just about Kirk being indecisive and realizing that I guess he doesn't have to go around kicking people in the face. <laughs> <laughs> that he needs to talk to him first. I don't know. Well, I think. Well, I thought we saw a totally new side of Gary we never saw before. The insightful. cool-headed one. The well, the cool-headed one. Yes, very true. But also insightful. But well, we're unlikely to see anything else because he's dead. He's gone. Well, they could always do another flashback episode and have him in there. Yeah, they could. They could do that. So, the Demorans were supposed to be rodents, descendant of rodents, mm-hmm. but I thought they looked a lot more like humanoid cats. They did remind me a lot of, like, uh, what was her name? Therese or Therese from the animated series. Right. With their face. Yeah. But I guess their their mouth is a little different and doesn't look exactly like the cat people, but... No. I see what you're where you're. But going. I think he looks more like uh, they, they look more like cat people than than rat people. But yeah, yeah but they have that rat tail. The tail's definitely rat-like. Oh, hmm. you don't see the rats. You don't see the tail all that much. Well, it depends. Right. Yeah, you see it in some panels, but not others. True. So I love seeing the uh, good old-fashioned uh, cage phasers, or should I say, lasers? The lasers. That's yes. right. Yeah, they didn't quite look right in the front, like the the nozzle part, but I thought they looked pretty good. Yeah, I thought it was cool seeing them. They had not quite gotten to the point of having phasers yet. Very cool. But I wanted to see them, like, crank on them. You know, don't they have the, the adjustments, like, at the barrel or something? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, what is it, you twist it and pull it out or something a little bit, and that'll make it overload? So it looks like they've got newer style communicators, though. I couldn't remember. What does the Pike communicators look like? Were they clear? or? Oh, well, to be perfectly honestly, I don't, if honest with you, I don't recall. I do recall in Where No Man Has Gone Before, they had clear. Ooh, that's a, oh, that's a very good. Well, that's a great point, Donovan. Hmm. Yeah, so in Where No Man Has Gone Before, Kirk is definitely using a big, clunky, like acrylic, clear radio. Right, and I thought no that was what they that. used in the cage as well. And maybe they did, but they also used, yeah, they use they, they used regular phasers, didn't they? Or did they use these cage phasers, hand phasers? And where no man has gone before? Yeah, yeah, I don't remember. I don't know if we ever saw phasers except for the giant phaser rifle. The phaser rifle, yeah. It's the only time we ever see that one. Hmm. Okay, but 
definitely no two ways about it. This comic is showing the new style communicator that we saw in the to- normal Toss series, which is inconsistent with the TV show, uh, where No Man Has Gone Before. I mean, the, you know, the episode. Right. Because this had to happen before, naturally, where, yep. uh, where No Man Has Gone Before, so. Right. Interesting. So did you understand exactly why the rat people were taking the phasers and communicator? But... Well, I think it was because they were uh, curious, but I don't know that they ever explained that. Yeah, so I mean, they, they whack Gary on his head just so that they can get the phaser off his belt, which I thought was a little weird. Right. That they're that focused on it, and then they don't actually use them. Right. Whether they don't know how to use them or what, or they're just more comfortable with their own weapons, I don't know. But, uh, right. yeah. And they don't seem to be doing much with the communicators either. Um, it's not like they're accidentally calling the ship. Or accidentally calling each other. You know, because more than one of them probably have one of those things. Right. Right. Accidentally create the walkie-talkie. <sighs> exactly. So. so they killed the first party. Everybody. Wiped them out. Um, and they killed that ensign. And then by the end, they're all buddies. So I think they killed the ensign because they didn't know yet that they were Skylanders or whatever they called themselves. Well, and that's something I didn't bother mentioning in the um, in the synopsis, just because I thought it was kind of irrelevant. I mean, it's like they talk about, oh yeah, you sky people. Oh yeah, we got legends about sky people for for generations. Yeah, you're a sky person. It's like, okay. Interesting. Right, but once they took their hoods down, then they stopped shooting the super toxic dart. <laughs> right. But less I guess, toxic dart. Right. Yeah, but but they took the other guys into custody. Did they think the less toxic dart would sedate them? Um, apparently that was a miscalculation because they ended up killing all of the original scientists. Well, I think they killed the scientists because the scientists were tricksters because they actually dressed up like well, them. And right, then he but, said that's the reason why they didn't kill Kirk's team yeah. is because they they openly showed themselves as being the Skywalkers or whatever they called them. Hmm. It didn't make a lot of sense, but I just went with it. Yeah. Well, all I know is it's a high body count for this first contact. So they definitely could have handled it better any way you look at it. Right. Right. I thought it was a little odd that at the beginning they're talking about how the scientists are there because they weren't sure if this species was intelligent or sentient, and yet they were showing pictures of them wearing clothes and using tools and stuff. So I'm Mm -hmm. like... What's your definition of intelligence? I mean, I think once you start wearing clothes and things like that, then... <laughs> you, you must you, have sewed them. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's it's one thing to say, you know, a monkey uses a tool or whatever, but that doesn't make him sentient or intelligent, but I don't know. I could also see the argument that it does. You know what I mean? It's, it's Oh, just yeah, especially when you, you go to some point. I mean, using a monkey using a stick to get ants out of a hole... Okay, that's pretty rudimentary. But, uh, you know, stitching up your own clothes, I think that's pretty advanced. Weaving, it's like, they must weave. And th- these aren't like skins right. that, they're, you know, that are stitching together. This is like, you know, w- woven cloth. And even if it was skins, I mean, 
it still shows that they are advanced enough to, you know, put stuff on to protect themselves or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. So um, that science officer of the Farragut was calling them maybe proto-intelligence. So right. the one step shy of intelligence? Hmm. I, I didn't buy it. I thought it was weird. Yeah. So uh, uh, real quick, uh, back on the first page where it shows the the Farragut's bridge. Right. And you see, uh, what was his name? Captain, Captain Garavik. Garavik. Yeah. So everybody's in their, you know, uh, cage era uniforms, which is nice. Right. Right. Uh, except for the girl in the red. I don't remember there ever being red uniforms in the cage episodes. Were there? I thought everybody kind of wore the yellow. Or um, I don't recall there being other colors, but right. It's been a while since I've watched the movie. But anyways, I'm okay with that. And everybody has their, uh, you know, Farragut badge on their chest. Right. Yet Captain Gaverick is drinking a cup of coffee with the. Enterprise logo on it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. Yeah, unless they're they're trying to say it's the Starfleet logo. I don't know, but that's that looks like an Enterprise swoosh. Well, we know from which the eventually cage. became. Well, but yeah. from the cage and from original series episodes, it's the Enterprise swoosh, not the mm-hmm. Federation one. Uh, yes, that's what I was saying. But so it became the Federation swoosh. But in the old days, originally it was meant to be the uh, the Enterprise symbol. Yeah. Right. So maybe Gaverick was just a big fan of Pike and was carrying around a, a coffee mug he gave him for Christmas. That's right. I wish I could be as cool as to be the captain of the Enterprise, but I'll just have to settle for this mug. <laughs> My best friend's the captain of the Enterprise, and all I got was this mug. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Do you see that writing on his shirt? It says there, right? The yeah, once I zoomed it in, there it was. There it is, exactly. That's right. So the idea that Kirk's father was, quote, lost, and that Captain April was his best friend and had to break the news to Kirk's family, it, does, is, is that jive with other stories? Is that good continuity? Um, as far as him dying, I don't know of. I don't think I've ever saw anywhere where George Kirk died. I mean, um, I mean, I assume he did at some point. Sure. So I, I don't know that that doesn't contradict anything I know. And as far as Kirk and April being friends, that that jives because you know in, in some of the novels, uh, you know George Kirk was with Captain April on the first Enterprise missions, and and George Kirk is the one that actually named him. Or named the ship Enterprise and things like that. So, they they were good friends for for a long time. At that point, so mm-hmm. it, it seems reasonable that right. um, that uh, April would be the one that told Kirk's family that he passed or was lost or yeah. however they were did. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense. I just didn't know that's what what happened to Kirk's father. Because they definitely say, which is kind of interesting, they definitely Spock said in the new movie. I think it was the new movie, mm-hmm. or was it... No, it was the well, movie. Okay, said, said that where he's from, Kirk's father lived and saw him to, to, to join Starfleet. Right. Yeah, and, so... And, and this story makes it sound like Kirk might have been on the young side when he found out about it. 
Right. Right. Well, as far as the novels and stuff that were coming on, coming out up to this point and all the way up until the the 2009 movie, um, Kirk, George Kirk was there while Captain April was in command of the Enterprise, while Kirk was you know teenager or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know at what point Kirk George Kirk died, but obviously. In this continuity, doesn't match up with the 2009 movie. Right, which is like, yeah, that's fine. This was written a lot before it. Well, I guess that's not entirely true. I mean, George Kirk could have died right after he became captain of the Enterprise. Could have been, but it seemed like he was saying uh, Captain April informed his family, like he was there with them or whatever. Right. Which sounds kind of unlikely if you were already graduated and off on your adventures. In True. Your career, but eh, who knows? True. And as far as the DC continuity goes, we did see where Kirk became captain of the Enterprise, and only his mother was there, and she gave him that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his dad wasn't there then. So yeah, a little different than the 2009 movie, but the 2009 Still. movie took a lot of liberties with everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I have to say is just kind of bringing this full circle is probably one of my earlier comments is that I, I like the, the beginning and the middle of this story, not too crazy about the end. So another situation where it got good build up and then the end was in my opinion, not that great. Right. Now they weren't speaking English. I'm assuming that it was universally translated to Well, okay. How do you how do you know they were not speaking English? Because I'm that's... assuming yeah, because everything that came in the word bubble, I mean, there was nothing even remotely trying to say, hey, this is translated English. It was pretty much English right off the bat. Right, but I mean, Which, that happens every time you go to another I know country. that, and that's something I never... It, that's just, I mean, especially a supposedly semi-intelligent life form. It's like, come on. I mean, English. But I, I will be the first one to admit it becomes unwieldy if you got to learn a new language every time, every week, you right. go to a new planet. Right. Right. And I'm sorry, I don't believe the universal translator built into the communicators do all that stuff magically. Well, it does. So I'm sorry you don't. So believe. there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, put the microbes in their ears. That's what I'd, I'd like that better. But microbes in your ears is the babblefish? No, Farscape. Farscape, I thought they injected it into their in their ears. They had something in their ears that would translate things. A biological life form. Okay. So, thanks. Because until then, he was like um, he couldn't understand what any of them were saying. Right. Right. Which makes sense. I thought they injected it into his bloodstream. You're saying they put it in his ear? As I recall, it was a uh, some kind of biological life form in the years. All right, I'll, I'll believe you. I know there was one episode where they pull out their eyeballs, which was very difficult to watch. Do you Ooh, remember what that was one? that one? No. Uh, they had to do something. They had to implant something behind their eyes, and so oh. there's this incredibly hard to watch scene where these things suction cup his eyes and kind of pull them out and then <laughs> go behind it. Oh, <sighs> it's, it was, that was a tough scene. No, I think I, that was like season two. I think I think I uh, considering my aversion to anything touching my eyes, I probably m- blocked that men- mental image out. Well, I'm glad I brought it back. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
damn you. So, uh, real quick, uh, on page four, okay. there's a shot of Gary kind of looking through one of the books that Kirk's reading. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he look like uh, McCoy from the 2009 movie? Um, oh. Carl Urban. Urban. Where, where his, his, his head's kind of up and tilted to the left. Right, right. Yeah, a bit. A bit. I just thought that was ironic. And then on the next page, uh, Captain Gaverick looks a little like Scott Bakula with oh, purple really? hair. Hold on, let me get to that. He does have purple hair, which is weird. Now, uh, Garavik, Captain Garavik, we actually saw him in one of our episodes, or one of the original Taz episodes, right? Did we? I couldn't remember. I think, I think so. Yeah, because he was like a bad guy or something. He turned bad or something. Uh, I don't I think don't it was. I don't think it was. Uh, what little girls were made of, but one of those episodes where uh, oh 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 Captain the original Garibic, series. Original okay, I thought you were talking yes. about comic books. Sorry. No, no, the original series, and it was like him and Yvonne Craig was dressed up as some kind of alien or something. It's probably a third season episode. Yvonne anyway. Craig, you mean Batgirl? Exactly, exactly. Huh. Who I, I used to love it when she kept on popping up in things in the in the sixties. That episode is not striking a bell with me. I'll have to go back yeah. and look through yeah, those I'm, again. I'm pretty sure he was. Anyway, he, I think he was like a little crazy or something. But huh. And he had purple hair? No, he didn't. Yvonne Craig had weird... She was an alien, and so she had different skin color and you know probably different hair color. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, in this comic book, Gary Vick has purple hair. On <laughs> Yes, obviously a coloring error. And also, I think his face is just a little odd-looking, because he looks nothing like the actor that played Garavik in in that one episode. No, he looks like Scott Bakula. Okay, so you're looking... On page five. So you're saying that... Let me page... Let me get to page five. Well, I'm looking at page six, and... um, yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think he looks like Scott Bakula there. Let me go back to the previous page. Oh, there in that one. Okay, so that one. Yeah, he's got a bigger nose in that one. Right. Scott Bakula, huh? Yeah, with purple yeah, hair. Could be. Scott Bakula had a big nose, biggish. <laughs> biggish, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, that yeah, could be. Yeah, he. Uh, Garavik was in the original series episode Obsession. Ah, Obsession. There you go. And Yvonne Craig was in that one, since you obviously looked it up. Where I'm at doesn't have the oh, actor's all... name. So. Okay, okay. Well, there you Maybe. go. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. It was a season two episode. Ah, season two. There you go. All right. Ready for the next one? Let's go. All right. I have the pleasures. This is issue 65, came out in November of 1994, entitled Bait and Switch. All the credits are the same except for the writer. Uh, This time it's Howard Weinstein with co-plotter T.A. Chaffin. So the cover is an unfortunate, very generic movie-era headshot-type cover. So we see Kirk, McCoy, Spock, Scotty, Ahura, Chekhov, just their heads. And then we, for whatever reason, we see the whole upper part of Sulu's body holding a phaser, kind of pointing it at the reader. And then beneath all those beautiful headshots, we see the uh, the butt end of the Enterprise A 
hovering over a blue planet. Yeah, so, and, and, and get used to this general look, because you're going to see it in the next issue. It's not as bad in the next issue, I didn't think. But, I mean, Sulu's on this cover. Yeah. Is he on the other cover? Well, I, I, oh, I didn't yeah, necessarily... And actually, he is. Yeah, he is. <laughs> it's all the same people. <sighs> I didn't I didn't. I'm see. pretty sure. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, it's all the same people. And it's mostly head and shoulder shots. Right. So we don't see anybody's upper torso completely, so that's different. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's just it's just a weird generic shot, I thought, or uh picture. I mean it looks yeah. cool, but it has nothing to do with this episode. No. I mean it's just a montage shot of the main characters. Right. So uh this issue starts off with the Enterprise A arriving at Starbase one nine five for a classified mission. So this is probably set sometime right before Star Trek VI. Uh, upon arrival at the Starbase, Kirk and Spock beam down and are introduced to a Vulcan ambassador named Siddick. He and his assistant named Tarin are very rude, and they refuse to divulge anything about the mission. Siddick gives Kirk a data disk, and he says that these are the coordinates they're going to go to and the speed in which the Enterprise needs to be at in order to get to those coordinates, but not telling him why and refusing to give any detail. So aboard the Enterprise sometime later, with the ship streaking away at warp, Chekhov and Savik meet for a little lunch. Savik asks the Russian if he thinks that the Vulcan ambassadors are being rude. Chekhov makes a joke about how all Vulcans are cold. He kind of corrects himself and tells her that she does not fit into that category. Spock joins Kirk and McCoy at their table. McCoy is about to make a move in the 3D chess game that they're playing. Spock gives him some advice, which he ignores and loses in Kirk's next turn. Spock and Kirk discuss the aloof nature of the ambassador Spock suggests that he will try to talk to Terren Vulcan to Vulcan. Later on the bridge, Spock has yet to have a chance to talk to Terren due to receiving a distress call from a local colony. Kirk has to get permission from Siddick to help the colony. Once assured that they will still make their mysterious rendezvous on time, Siddick agrees and the Enterprise heads towards the colony. Once there... They learn that the colony has been bombarded with unnatural radiation from space. Much like the planet back in issue number 35 did. And as we all remember, in that story, it was the Romulans and the Marones. Uh, could they be at it again? Well, we won't know because there's no time to investigate. Uh, since they still have to make this rendezvous, once they are... Assured that the colony is not going to die of radiation, they have to head back towards Siddick's destination. Before too long, there is yet another distress call. This one is coming from the USS Hayden. They report that a comet is about to crash into a planet and kill a pre-warp civilization. Siddick refuses to allow the Enterprise to intervene, since this is a natural phenomenon. Siddick does relent, and he explains the purpose of the mission. There is going to be a conference in an area of space that is not controlled by either the Romulans or the Federation, but both organizations want to get a toehold. The inhabitants of the planets value punctuality over all else, so if the Federation does not arrive, 
at the exact moment that they're supposed to, then the Romulans will get the systems. Spock continues to investigate the comet phenomenon, and he is able to prove that the comet was artificially diverted from its known path. And, as we said earlier, it's now heading towards the planet. Sedek cannot refuse to help now, since it's an unnatural occurrence. So the Enterprise arrives to the comet long enough for it to be blasted away with phasers, and then they warp away at top speed. They finally arrive at the destination, only to learn that they are indeed too late. The aliens tell them that there will be no discussions with the Federation, and they close communication with them. Just then, Tarin pulls out a phaser and places Sidek under arrest. She tells the surprised crew that he is a Romulan spy and that she was assigned to watch over him. He blows his own cover and tells them that the damage is already done since the Romulans will now have this sector of space. Tarin surprises everyone yet again by telling them that the real ambassador from the Federation is already on the planet and everything was worked out well before the Enterprise arrived. The Federation and the aliens have already worked out a treaty. Before too much celebration can commence, the aliens on the planet contact the Enterprise and request that they help stop a shuttle that is leaving orbit. Kirk obliges and the shuttle is caught quickly and pulled aboard the Enterprise. Once the doors to the shuttle are opened, everyone is shocked to find a pair of teenagers at the controls. One is a young female Vulcan, and the other is a reptilian alien male. The Vulcan claims to be the daughter of Stan and Tapring. Perhaps you've heard of them. To be continued. That's a blast from the past. A little mock time action. Yeah. Stan and Tapring. Hmm. I'll be honest. I, I she calls him Ambassador Stan and Tapring, and I didn't catch that. I didn't know that Stan ended up becoming a ambassador of any sort. Oh I no, thought, that's the first we heard of it. I mean, right. I, I mean, I, I think no one's heard about Stan since that original uh, uh, Taz episode. Right. And interesting to hear about uh, what happened to. Um, Spock's former betrothed. But we'll have to wait till next issue to find out. Yes, which will luckily not be that far from now. Whew. I do find it funny that this is not considered issue or one of the story arc, even though it obviously is. I mean, like well, when we says it isn't. Well, the next issue is called whatever part one. Oh, hmm, hmm, yeah, that's not that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Right, so I thought it was I thought it was weird that this is not considered a, a standalone epi- issue yet. That it that, obviously that, that entrees very clearly into the next uh, storyline, but right. Hmm. So, anyways, this story was kind of just a race against time, and and all these weird things were happening uh, without really any explanation. I mean, so was it really the Romulans that diverted the comet and? sent that radiation on that colony probably but we're not going to ever hear anything about it again yeah I think it's highly likely and Stan was in or not Stan uh, this ambassador was in on the whole thing right but I mean that's a pretty big deal that the Romulans are bold enough to actually 
try to destroy a planet with a comet and to well, radiate they're another ruthless. They're radiate ruthless. another colony. Yeah, just to delay the Enterprise. That's right. So in issue 35, that was not a Federation colony that they were sending the radiation on, but this one is. So yeah. that one, to me, I think is a little worse, that uh, they're really overstepping their... It's an act of war. Right. But we don't go to war with them, because I've seen Star Trek VI. <laughs> <laughs> and I know what happened. Yes. Right. Well, as soon as the, the ambassador at the beginning of this this little story uh, and the assistant were just so totally rude and stuff, it's like, I was wondering what's going on here. I'd like, uh, I definitely was not expecting the assistant, though, to be a counter-agent from, you know, Vulcan originally. I was no, not I really, expecting that. I was really expecting her to be the uh, Romulan agent. Oh, her. The, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of figured all along that there was somebody, you know, um, planting information and things like that, especially when, you know, the ambassador says, you know, nobody but me and my assistant knows anything about these, our destination. Right. So right. then I'm like, oh, she's about to get it. <laughs> and then come to find out it was him. So <laughs> I actually was a little surprised. Yeah. Yes. Almost a surprise is finding out about the daughter, Spock could have had with with Dupring. Well, you don't know if that would be his daughter. Well, no, but the idea. <laughs> I mean, when you when you meet when you meet an ex-girlfriend, somebody you were very serious about, perhaps going to marry, and then you see how their relationship was later, you know. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah, that that, you know, it, it's not my daughter. I know that, but if I did have a daughter with her, she would have at least looked half like this kid. Right. And she's a pistol. Yeah, I like we'll, I like her, especially yeah. in the next next episode. Yeah, we'll find out more about that next issue, but but uh yeah. I, I I enjoyed that little surprise at the end. I wasn't expecting it. Right. So speaking of that, when they tractor beamed that shuttle into the shuttle bay, mm-hmm. uh Kirk is standing on the outside of these airlock doors until he gets a little chime or, or a voice that says hangar deck pressurized and mm-hmm. then they go in. Since when have they ever done that? I always thought they had that magnetic yeah, little force, force field right. thing. Yeah. That's holding the air and pressure in. Right. That the ship just passes through like in uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. I mean, don't they actually show that in the movies? I'm pretty uh, sure do. Do they? I, I don't recall. I mean, the only time I remember them talking about pressure in the shuttle bay was, what, Star Trek V? Don't they, like, crash land into it or something like that? And it wasn't pressurized? But I thought that was just a emergency type thing. Yeah, that was definitely an emergency type thing. So anyways, I thought it was funny. And then also on that same page, if you look at the Shuttlecraft 3 which is also in the hangar bay. It has some interesting bumper stickers. Okay, hold on. So which page is this? <laughs> it's on uh, page 23. Oh, 23. Okay, I yeah. was jumping back to earlier ones. Uh, by the way, I do enjoy seeing the um, the battle phasers. Uh, yes. How's my driving? And I break for Klingons. I break for Klingons. Yeah, that's cute. <laughs> 
So you didn't catch that when you I were... did not catch that at all. Okay. I think my I think my eyes were a little more focused on the uh on the ship on the pink ship coming in. Well it's only pink because the it's, courier the courier ship. It's pink because it's caught into the, the pink tractor beam. Yeah. I'm just saying. A little more focused on that. But that that is cool. I, I like the little signs there. That's good. Although I do like that ship, the the little shuttle. Because it actually has like exhaust coming out when it's trying to get away from the Enterprise. On oh. the previous page, page twenty-two. Okay, yeah. This this cool. really fast courier ship. Yeah, looks like something from Star Wars. Oh, does it? Ah. Well, it does look a little different, as it should. Coming from this totally the other, the Nagi or, well, whatever the names are. Right. It should be a different kind of look to it. And it is. Nara, that's it. All right. I don't have anything else to say about this one. Ooh, that was a quick one. It was, but I don't do you? think you said anything. I think I did all the talking. Well, you did a lot of talking. I had a few. I made a few comments. So, uh, I know we don't normally talk about the advertisements, but this uh, one has a pretty cool one for a Batman graphic novel called Batman The Last Angel. Okay. Uh, it's opposite of page nine. I just like that artwork where it has Catwoman and like a leopard oh, type. Oh yeah, I know uh, what you like. Outfit and then Batman standing behind her holding that the whip. Uh huh. I don't know. I just like I like that depiction of Batman. Not very realistic, but just a really cool picture of Batman. Yeah, Batman looks really cool. Uh, I think I was kind of fascinated with Catwoman, who really does have an interesting outfit on. Yeah, it's different. Because I don't think I've ever seen her in a like kind of like a, a a tan and black leopard skin striped kind of outfit. Right. It's quite um quite nice, quite nice. Well. All right. Anyways, uh, you ready to move on? I am ready, man. So the next issue is issue number sixty-six. The title is Rivals Part One. It is Part One. Weird. Writer is Howard Weinstein. Penciler is Thomas Derenick. Inks, Arnie Starr. Colorist is David Graff. Letterer is Bob Panaha. And Margaret Clark is the editor. The cover was kind of like the last one, with the heads and shoulders of Kirk, Spock, and the rest of the Taz movie's crew uh, with a uh, are shown there with a star-filled background. The Enterprise is above them, coming towards the reader. The story continues from last issue, despite what it says about this being part one, where an important Vulcan ambassador was unmasked by a Romulan spy, by his diplomatic aide that turns out to be a covert Vulcan officer. The ambassador was caught red-handed, working with the Romulans to sabotage negotiations with the Naragai Ordinate. While in Ordinate space, Kirk was asked to intercept a stolen Ordinate courier ship. When they did so, they found the fugitives were a native boy named Dalin and a young Vulcan woman named Tiaris. Tiaris claims to be the daughter of Ambassador Stan and Tapring, Spock's former betrothed wife. The events of the classic Taz episode of Mock Time are summarized for the reader, which I will not repeat here, since we all know what happened that. Come on, it's a great, great episode. They find out from Turin that Stone, Stan and T'Pring had been separated for some time. Shortly after Tiaris was born, T'Pring made it clear to Stan that she would stay on as the matriarch 
of the Temple of Kolinar. Stan returned home with the baby and went on to become an able Federation ambassador. In fact, he was assigned to the Nargai negotiations. He left for the negotiations with his new wife, Sapora and Tiaris. How Tiaris came to be on the courier ship with that local kid is unknown, but Kirk says they will likely find out when they reach Nara. They arrive at Nara, which is the inner habitable world, and the system's seat of power. The outer Gai planet is was passed on their way to Nara. In the quarters, the young Dalen is fretting over what will happen to them when they are called to account for stealing the ship. He says what happened to the flawless Vulcan logic that allowed them to get into such a mess. Tiaris surprisingly says logic is not everything. She would have been a chip off the old block if she had been Spock's daughter. In the discussion, we find out she is not on the best terms with her father, Ambassador Stan. Later on Nara, Dalen is being flogged, as he feared he would be, while in stocks by a brutal Naran. Kirk finally has enough and grabs the brute's arm. The potential fight is avoided when Ambassador Stan calls them into his house. In the house, they were treated to domestic squabbling, Vulcan style with a brash, disrespectful teenage daughter, an unwelcome boyfriend, a stepmother that tries and fails to exert motherly order on the situation, and finally the stern father that attempts to impose his will. In the end, the conflict ends when Ambassador Stan falls to the ground, clutching his chest. McCoy beams down and determines Stan has serious pulmonary congestion. Stan sits up, finally, slowly, and apparently is recovering from his affliction. Tiaris leaves the house and won't say where. McCoy administers a shot to help with the acute symptoms. Quickly, Tiaris and Dalen are returned to the front door by armed Naran security forces. They say they are taking them down to detention where they will be held until their trial. Over Sapora's objections, claiming diplomatic immunity, Ambassador Stan says that is not the way of Nara and tells the police to take them away as is their duty. McCoy is taken aback by Stan's heartless cruelty towards his own daughter. Stan retires to his office. Sapora implores Kirk to speak sense to her husband. Under duress, he says he will try. McCoy returns to the Enterprise to search for Vulcan pulmonary illness cures, while Kirk and Spock visit Supreme Adjunct Vicoda at the Ngai Justice Bureau. The adjunct seems impervious to Kirk and Spock's persuasive arguments and unlikely to free Tiaris and Dalen. However, he does end up releasing Tiaris on the condition that she does not leave the ambassador's house before she leaves the planet. Dalen has confessed to save Tiaris, and the adjunct seems more than happy to take the confession and crush the pitiful but brave guy boy. Tiaris objects, and Spock has to neck-pinch her into unconsciousness when she attempts to do the same to Kirk. Kirk and Spock return the now unconscious Tiaris to her parents' home, where she storms up to her room saying she does not want to be disturbed. Sapora thanks Kirk and Spock for returning their daughter. 
but they explain the authorities already had decided to release her, so they merely escorted her back to the house. Confused, Sapporo says, no matter. The important thing is she's home. Ambassador Stan comes out to join them and tells Kirk and Spock that his eminence, Reverend Texafa, has called him to tell him that the treaty negotiations that have taken so long to develop has been nullified, negated, invalidated, abrogated. It is a dead parrot. I mean, a dead treaty. And all due to Kirk's misguided meddlings. To be continued. A dead parrot? A dead parrot? Yes, a dead that parrot. A Monty Python thing? Heck yes, Monty Python. Everybody out there is saying, of course it's Monty Python. Come on. All right, I've heard of the dead parrot, but I don't know Sketch. what... I don't know anything about it. I've never actually listened to it or saw it. Oh, well. I will have to provide you the uh, the clip. Well, you can also explain it to our vast listening audience. I, I don't think I need to. I think they've seen it. They know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm the only one. You're the only one. All right. All Come right. on, people. Write in. Back me up here. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, part, of the, part of the joke is the guy buys a parrot that's obviously dead at a pet shop. And he brings it back to return it, because it's obviously a dead parrot. And he goes through something similar, saying, you know, it is dead. It no longer is upon this earth. You know, he just keeps on going on and going on. This is a dead parrot. So, that's it. All right. John Cleese. Yeah, I I did think that uh, Stan's little monologue was was a little long. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's the Romulan agent, too. I don't know. Maybe. Um, yeah, what a jerk. So so apparently, Stan is upset because it was more important for him to make this diplomatic coup than to get his daughter out of prison. Right. So it's like, wow. I'll tell you, I don't like that. So don't you think, I, I think the Naga looks a bit like Gorin's. A little bit. Yeah, at least in the front, you know. In the back, they got this the sharp, kind of hair spiky kind of skin spears coming out of the back of their heads. So that's right. totally different. But the but the nose and stuff looks looks a bit Gornish. Right. Now, uh, real quick, when we first see these guys and he's he's whipping that, that one alien. Yeah, Dalen. Right. It's not Dalen, because Dalen's being beamed down at that moment. It's just some other poor guy. There on uh, I thought that was Dalen. Well, <laughs> then I got it wrong then. But I, I'm I'm pretty sure I I'm pretty sure it was Dalen. But well, look on page ten, and you can see while that guy's screaming, "I'm sorry, I'll never do it again." You right. can see that Dalen's being beamed down at that moment. Oh, good point. You're right. You're right. I am wrong. But Dalen's about to get the same treatment, so yeah, he you're is. not that wrong. He well, I don't. No, you're, you're just a little no, premature. I'm, I'm completely wrong. Uh, yes, but that's the way they treat all these guys. Right. The, guy, the guy people are obviously second-class citizens who almost have horse-like phases. Yeah, so are they reptilian or are they mammals? Well, I think the guy people are more like horses, so I think they're mammals. Oh, okay. But, I, it, it, but obviously the, the Nara are, you know, they look reptilian. Right, and that one shot we saw last issue when I was doing the synopsis, I, I kind of thought that they were still supposed to be reptilian, but throughout here he does look a little 
almost like the uh, Dark Crystal type creatures. You remember that show? I remember the movie. Right. You remember the 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 elders or whatever? They kind of looked like this, where they had the the long snout faces. Yeah. Yeah. Kinda. So, did the girl uh, have that tattoo thing underneath her eye in the last issue? I would like, have to like look. Like he does, but... like the guy has. Right. Yeah, and and hers is clear, I guess, and his is red. Right. So, is that supposed to be some kind of a uh, bonding ritual, or something or other? They're an item. Or yeah, what? maybe maybe they're in love. We are in love. Yeah, I gotta say though. Um, you know, she's, she's okay looking, you know, uh, and, you know, Dalen is like, yee. Oh, he's probably really good looking for his species. Maybe, but come on. Okay, so Dalen definitely had the little star thing under his eye, because I'm looking at, uh, issue 65. Last issue, yeah, I, I don't see it, I never, ah, I didn't see it. But she doesn't have it. No, she doesn't. She doesn't have it until this issue. Fascinating. Right. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Right. Good point. So maybe in route when when she <laughs> ran out or something, they gave a little tattoo. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Or maybe they just thought, you know, we already, you know, even though we already did the last issue and she didn't have it, this would help to reinforce the idea that they're an item. Right. Let's put it on there. <laughs> so next issue it'll probably be bright red. We're here. It's clear. Oh. Ooh. So maybe it's a tattoo that takes a while to uh, come into full fruition. Right. Hmm. Anyways, so what did you think of the stepmother? I thought she needed to lose a little weight. I um, thought that was an odd artistic choice for a Vulcan, because I've never seen a... Heavy Vulcan. Heavy Vulcan. Neither have I. But, you know, how often do you see heavy, except for Scotty, uh, <laughs> Starfleet people? True. I mean, it's kind of an idealized future, which isn't too realistic, given humanity anyway. Right. But. Anyways, I thought it was an odd choice. It it, it kind of took me out of caring for her or whatever, because, oh, I mean, really? not, not right. really, and that, that sounds bad, but it just like, because she looks so different than any other Vulcan you've ever seen, oh, I kept yeah. focusing on that. I'm like, I couldn't tell, is she drawn poorly? Is this a bad angle? Is she really that heavy? No, she's heavy. But, uh, but yeah, I think she's she's really supposed to be that heavy. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting choice. Yeah, and I felt bad for her, though, because, you know, she's obviously un, very un-Vulcan. Like, she really cares for this girl. Right. And wants this girl to, you know, respect her like, like a mother. Right. Which, you know, if you were a Vulcan... Or, would you really act like that or care? I don't know. But how much of it is for real and not? It seems like it's for real, but you never know. You think she's a wicked stepmother that's only doing it for show? She doesn't seem to be so far, but I'm not going to discount the possibility. And when Stan dies, she'll be like, send my daughter to the dungeon! <laughs> <laughs> what Was that Snow White? And uh, the Huntsman? Wasn't that uh, like Snow White and the Husband? Something like that? I've never seen that movie, but maybe. Yeah, it's something like that. Well, I know that the original Snow White, she wanted to eat her heart or something. That's why she wanted the Huntsman to bring back the heart when he killed her. 
something. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw. To be perfectly honest, I saw the like the first forty minutes of the movie, half an hour of the movie, and I fell asleep after that. It wasn't very interesting. Oh, you mean Kristen Stewart does, didn't just suck you into the movie? She her her amazing thespianism just. Uh, right. Yeah, no, no, not not really. I can't wait till she plays um, Savick in Star Trek Three. That's not going to happen. Yeah, you say that. That's not going to happen, JJ. <laughs> Don't tell me that. So, We're... speaking of Star Trek Three, did mm-hmm. you happen to read the Blaster article talking about the possible Star Trek Three director? Uh, I saw that they had a blurb, but I didn't read it. Yeah. It's, who is it that they're? I mean, it's so it's all speculation. Oh, so. completely. Uh, Brian Singer. Oh, really? Well, he's yeah. always wanted to direct Star Trek. Right. I mean, he he pitched a new TV series of Star Trek, uh-huh. and I guess well, okay. So this is supposedly what he said. He 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 actually is a is a friend of JJ's, and he's actually visited the set of of this last film, uh, Star Trek Twelve, I call it, and um. And so he he said he would he would it would be scary to take on that kind of responsibility. But you know if JJ was there to support him and uh, you know the production crew and you know that machine they've got going, then maybe he could get over it. This coming from the guy who did X Men and Superman without any problem, but he thinks that Star Trek would is intimidating. Uh if this article is accurate in the supposed quotes, yes. Huh. All right. Well, I, I I think that would be a good choice. I like Brian Singer. Uh, I do, but he's got hot and cold um, track record. He does. I think his first movie that really catapulted him to, uh, you know, to the big time, uh, The Usual Suspects. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Um, and the f- he did the first X-Men, right? He did the first two. Okay, well, the first X-Men I liked. Right. Not as crazy about the second one. Right. And then Superman Returns. Not that crazy about that. Greatness. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just like Green Lantern. Greatness. Green Lantern was not as good as Superman Returns, but still okay. good. Yeah, I, I liked it, you know. Right. All right. Well, okay. that'd be cool. Yeah, I, I think he'd probably do a good job. I mean, you know, as yeah. long as we still got, uh, you know, the dynamic duo, you know, writing a good script. Right. Uh, or I guess trio, since um, what's-his-name also contributed, I guess. Uh, yeah. um, the, Damien, the, whatever his name yeah, is. Yeah, that guy, right. Lost Prometheus guy? Lost Prometheus guy, exactly. I guess he contributed, too, so. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not too thrilled with him. Damon Lind- Lindoff. Lindoff, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's get back to this issue, Ken. Let's. So uh, I thought um, Kirk looked incredibly tall and lean on page eight when there's a shot of him on the bridge from a little bit of a distance. I'll oh, admit yeah. to that. But he looks really tall and really lean, and it's like he was never either. <laughs> Well, they're stretching him out to uh, the the upper panel. Yeah, what? he looks big. Well, he kind of he kind of carries over from one panel to the another one. Right. So, so yeah, you're right. He does look a little large. He just 
Yeah, but yeah, not in his normal large way. <laughs> he looks giant. <laughs> he looks broad nowadays. So, <laughs> you know what's funny is that uh, on page nine, yeah. yes. the the girl does not have the tattoo. So some somewhere between page nine and page uh, twelve, she gets the tattoo under her eye. Yeah. Well, she's got it on eleven, page eleven, bottom of page eleven. I guess it's just one of those things that we're just going to see coming and going. Right. Well, maybe in the future you can have tattoos that come and go. They have or the technology. Maybe it will be explained later. We don't know. Maybe. Maybe keep... it's some kind of a, a mood tattoo or something. <laughs> right. It comes and goes depending upon her uh, emotional state. Right. Which shouldn't right. be that much because she is a Vulcan. However, she's quite an emotional little chick. She reminds me a lot of Savick. Ah. From those original, um, or not original, but from those expanded universe about her mm-hmm. childhood and stuff. Right. Just the the wild child type right. girl. Cool. Good point. Good point. So I wonder in the end if um, Spock has any ongoing contact with her. I'm guessing not, but... Well, we won't know because this series is going to get canceled in about 12 issues. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so do Vulcans have two hearts, or do I have that wrong? Uh, no, you're thinking of Time Lords. Okay, it's Time Lords. But but Vulcans have two of something. I know they got an inner eyelid, but they've also got two organs of something, don't they? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I, I know so my, that my... Klingons have redundant organs. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know about um, Vulcans. Okay. Well, I must say that. Vulcan ambassadors tend to have a lot of heart problems. Okay. Who else? Hello. Oh, and, Spock's and Journey father. to Babel. Exactly. Was it a heart problem in that one? I, I thought he was poisoned it, or something. No, I think it was a heart problem. Oh, okay. Poisoned? I don't, th- I don't think he was poisoned. I think he just had some illness. Hmm. Okay. But uh, speaking of Time Lord, uh, can I mention real quick, just because no. this is such a great this segment. Is Star Trek. No, it's... The Doctor Who. Uh, in the in the uh, letters page, a uh, the second letter by Scott McLean. Oh. He Bale. mentions that uh, since Lost in Space was no longer a comic book, that he thinks Star Trek is the number one comic book, sci-fi comic book, uh, with only the exception of Doctor Who. And he says that he would like to see. Kirk being rescued from his current predicament by the doctor. Just a thought. I realize that this wouldn't happen, but just think of the hype potential. Which is ironic because... A Star Trek Doctor Who crossover? Come on, what are they talking about? Right. It only what a ridiculous took another... idea. That'll never happen. <laughs> just wait, Scott. Just wait. It'll, yes. it'll happen in about 20 years. Your dream will come true. <laughs> it'll take a while, yes. <laughs> and it won't be DC Comics doing it, but it'll happen. Exactly. Just wait. Exactly. So I hope he, I hope he's still around and still reading comic books uh, to enjoy that. And he can throw it in his wife's face. This was my idea. They took it from me. I should sue him. <laughs> Anyways, that was my last comment. What else you got? Nothing. I got nothing, man. I'm looking forward to seeing how Kirk and Spock get out of this uh, this accusation that they really screwed everything up. Right. One last question. One last thing. I did like that they mentioned that 
Spock, Sal, Tepring on Vulcan during Star Trek Four. Ah, or the colon hour between or three and four. Or what? Yeah, during that. Right. He Th- wasn't that was, there. That but was a nice. That was a was, nice little thing to stick in there. It wasn't during the colonar, right? It was when he was getting his memories back, or whatever. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Whatever so. they were calling that, those ceremonies, as he was finding himself again. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Anyways, that was it. Anything else? Nothing, man. All right. So real quick, expanded universe time. Uh, October of. 1994, there was a Next Generation novel called Requiem by Michael Jan Friedman and Kevin Ryan. Uh, this is actually a, um, a stargazer type story. I think it has like flashbacks, you know, Next Generation timeline, then he flashes back to stargazer timeline. But uh, it has uh, a young Captain Picard versus the Gorn. So if you're a Gorn fan, that's one to uh, look up. Requiem. I do like them. Also that month, a novelization of a Deep Space Nine episode entitled The Search by Diane Carey. So that was the two-parter that opened up Season 3. And there was a young adult novel called... Deep Space Nine young adult novel called Prisoners of Peace by John Peel. November, there was a... It's just called Star Trek Novel, but it actually has the original series and the Next Generation series both in it. It's called Federation by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. I've heard of them. Uh, Yeah, and this book's actually uh, pretty good because it has, um, I think it's based like year four or five of the first five-year mission Mm -hmm. as far as the original series timeline goes. And Kirk has to go back and try to find Zephyrin Cochran. As you remember in that episode, they left him on that asteroid with the uh, the entity or whatever. Right. And then uh, somehow what they're doing ties into what uh, Picard and company are doing in the future. It's been many, many years since I read it, so I'm a little fuzzy on some of the details, but I do remember actually enjoying that one a lot. So look it up. Very good. Uh, next is Antimatter. This was a Deep Space Nine episode. Uh, this was a Deep Space Nine novel written by John Fornholt. And uh, ironically enough, also in November, uh, John Vernholt uh, was the author of Deep Space Nine issue number 19 for Malibu Comics. So uh, we'll cover that in episode 129. But it was it's kind of cool that November he, his novel and his comic book both came out. But he's written quite a bit. All right, uh, December, an original series episode entitled "The Better Man," written by Howard Weinstein, who is the author of uh, these comic books that we're reading about today. Uh, there was also a Deep Space Nine young adult novel called "The Pet" by Mel Gilbin and Ted Peterson, not Mel Gibson, Mel Gilden. And then probably the biggest book that came out these these three months is the Next Generation novelization of Star Trek Generations by J.M. Dillard because December was also the, the year or the month that uh, Generations came out. Oh, okay. You remember that movie? I remember that movie. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, except for you know, Kirk dying. It was so sad. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> At least he di- died well instead of stupidly. In the <laughs> well, original 
cut. Right, right. I've read this J.M. Dillard book, and she has a lot of great scenes that, that didn't make it into the movie or probably were never actually intended to be in the movie, but mm-hmm. she wrote them in order to to better tie in Spock McCoy and, and the rest of the original oh, series good. cast. Right. Uh, you know, like having Kirk's funeral and things like that that they skip over in the movie. Right. Very good. Um, as far as the stuff that's not actually just reiterating what was in the show, I really enjoyed that novelization. And that's it for uh, these three months. So I am wondering, the first book I think you mentioned uh, that might have been a Peter David David book, and he wrote with Kevin Ryan, did you say? Uh, Michael Jan Friedman and Kevin Ryan. Oh, Michael Jan Friedman and Kevin Ryan, okay. Right. And of course, Kevin, oh, it was Kevin J. Ryan. Is it? Or is it, because Kevin J. Ryan wrote our first book, uh, Gary. Oh, is it? Today. So I didn't know if it was the same guy or not. Uh, I don't know. Let me let me look it up on Memory Beta. Right. I have Kevin Ryan writing a lot of novels uh, as far as Memory Beta, but it doesn't say that he wrote this comic book. What was that one? What was Kevin, the issue called? Uh, the issue called Gary. Gary. By Kevin J. Ryan. And maybe that's why he's got the J in there. Different guy. Yeah. Kevin J. Ryan doesn't have a... Uh, a page on memory beta, so it must be a different guy. Makes sense. Makes sense. Ironic, though, that, that so close in name. Anyways, all right. Cool. Well, okay. Next issue or next? I keep saying issue and episode interchangeable, and I apologize for that. <laughs> uh, next episode uh, of our podcast of our podcast, we will be doing nineties uh, number fifty-seven, which is the next generation sixty-four through sixty-six. Excellent. Looking forward to it. And this issue, or this episode, excuse me, <laughs> this episode we're recording is actually going to be the last episode posted before Star Trek Into the Darkness comes out. Ooh. So for all you future listeners, cool. enjoy the movie on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> we know we will. I hope to. I'd like to see it in the IMAX probably... Um, if I can have my way, I would do it on uh, Thursday night IMAX. But well, I'm getting old. I probably should just wait until Friday, like everybody else. You probably should, old man. <laughs> Unless you want to take the next day off. Oh yeah, I'm taking the next day off. Because it's Star Trek Day. Come on. Right. It's a national holiday. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, well, that's it, Ken. Anything else? No, not at all. Just uh, looking forward to the movie. Loving it. Living it. I'm going to see if my theory is right, my plot theory. All right, everybody. Take care and talk to you next week. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at StarTComicBookReview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes, or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.